The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Thanks for joining us and welcome to another edition of the Spinal Oncology uh, Group uh, where we're going to do a podcast talking about use of bone cement uh, in metastatic disease of the spine and other applications in the spine. Uh, I'm Matthew Goodwin from Washington University in St. Louis. I'm joined by Joe Schwab of MGH uh, and Harvard and Dan Shuba uh, out of Hopkins. Uh, Guys, maybe we can just start by uh, talking about the use of cement uh, in the spine. Uh, Dan, I know uh, you use cement to augment your screws, uh, sometimes uh, when you're dealing with a metastatic, a patient with metastatic disease. And this is something I uh, obviously learned from you when I trained with you. Uh, And as I've moved on, I've noticed that depending on the setting, there are uh, uh, several spine surgeons that seem much less comfortable using uh, cement in the spine. I, I guess we could start by maybe you talking about how you started using bone cement uh, in the spine and and how were you able to do that safely in your practice? Great. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. I think this is a great question. Uh, you know, the metastatic patients are are different, right? And 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 the thing that they're challenging with is that they're very sick, potentially very unstable, but then they have a very hostile environment in the spine. So uh, they don't necessarily fuse that well, given maybe radiation, either before or after. Their nutrition is bad, so they might be very osteoporotic, or even their healing potential is poor, and then they might be on chemotherapy. So all three of those lead to patients who don't have great fixation, and then even if they do have reasonable fixation, might not have great fusion potential. So when we look at uh, failure models, uh, really the failure often with the improvement in implants is that the bone screw interface in these patients because the rods can be stronger and stronger and the screws are strong. And now what we're seeing is the, uh, the, the failure. And so cement for me was a, was a, was a godsend. And the way it started was that I, in cases, would, would, would uh, inject cement into the virtual body. And then what happened was it was, it was uh, soft and I would follow it or you could let it hard and drill into it. And it was much more technically uh, uh, onerous. And now, as as you know, there are these fenestrated screws, which were allowed to be used in Europe for years for any indication. In America, they've become used now uh, on label for metastatic disease. And this really is something that uh, is a huge help. And and now I think a lot less about uh, it becomes that the threshold is so low, as I think I've had good experience and safe experience with them. Uh, in my experience. So that, that's something that I just think for a tumor patient or a metastatic patient, if you want to get this patient through, and maybe the patient doesn't have a long survival, uh, the last thing you want is taking them through a situation where they have a revision operation, and then they have two hits in their shortened survival. It's the worst. So this is a way to, to really, uh, uh, um, not guarantee, but really give a strong sense that they're going to have a durable construct. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point about the uh, fenestrated screws because I certainly learned how to do it on with fenestrated screws, which is a relatively uh, a new thing, uh, at least that we're using here. Um, you know, Joe, you're you're in Boston, which I would guess is a somewhat of a, a litigious market, um, given the history in at least in orthopedics. You know, with with 
arguments about cement in the spine, whether it's kyphoplasty versus vertebroplasty and when to do that sort of thing. Are, do any of your patients ever have, have a problem with using cement? Or, or is it something you guys even talk about? And, or is it something you use when it comes up? And, and what do you tell them if there is a problem? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, you, it's a good idea to talk about it. I, I do think that, that um, as time has gone on, the concerns about cement extravasation have decreased, <clears throat> not necessarily because the rate of extravasation is so low, because it certainly happens, but I think that the the um, neurologic sequelae are, are, are relatively uh, uh, relatively low in, in terms of uh, frequency. In fact, I haven't seen that, that occur, although it can, and so it's probably worthwhile discussing it, but I, I, I haven't had patients balk on it, in, in particular because I've explained to them that although there is a theoretical risk that we need to discuss, it just is, is something that happens very infrequently. Yeah, I don't, I don't, um, uh, Dan, I don't, I don't know. I mean, when I was you, I don't remember anyone having a problem with it. I don't know if you've ever uh, had folks from around the world that see you ever, ever have an issue or has it uh, ever come up really? Yeah, I think that um, the, obviously we've seen complications from cement. And I think if you just look at anything and really give a good follow-up and, and we're putting our series together now, um, when you look at extravasation to Joe's point, it's it, radiographically, it's quite common that, the, the cement, it follows a vein, and the vein goes either outside the virtual body or the vein goes into the epidural space, or there's some extravasation uh, slightly beyond the bony edge, but uh, symptomatically, it, it's extremely rare. And then the other thing is that some patients uh, have been found to have small pieces of uh, cement in the, in the potentially the pulmonary uh, um, vasculature. Um, what what uh, But it is rare. I, I think over the years, I've seen probably more issues with vertebroplasty uh, than any. And I think part of that stems from the fact that the early cement was done, obviously, um, under fluoro by, by trained uh, people, but the cement was so thin and the working time was so small. So you'd go from something very liquidy uh, that had to be injected quickly because very quickly it turned from liquidy to rock hard and you had this uh, time to, to get it in and, and, and this sweet spot of consistency. And I think some of the technological advancements in cement have been a, a, a more sticky type of cement that has a longer working time. And so that allows us to inject under lower pressure because uh, we're not uh, shoving in. It's, going, it's not going in super quickly. On the other hand, it's not super hard. And we're shoving in really hard. So I think that's something that tech, the, uh, the, the companies have learned from all of us. And I think that's a huge uh, safety improvement, technologically speaking. Dan, I agree with you. I think one of the things um, is the, the when you talk about cement is, you know, distinguishing as you did between uh, cement with screws versus cement as a standalone. And 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 I think that that there are some obviously as you pointed out some, some differences. And and one of the things that comes up frequently with regard to cement uh, as a standalone are the patients that say have no posterior wall. And so perhaps they, ha they have an indication for, for cement augmentation, but they lack a posterior wall, and there's some concern about, about uh, causing cord compression. That used to be an absolute no-go, but I, I think it's a, relative, uh, um, it's a relative contraindication, meaning that we, we do it, but certainly that's a discussion you have with patients. And I think, as you point out, uh, techniques have changed, uh, and the cement has changed, and it makes those uh, that condition less risky, but clearly something that you want to talk about. But I think there is a clear difference between using cement and screws versus a, a standalone. Obviously, the indications are different, but 
also I think some of the risks are slightly different as well. Joe, yeah, I, I, I use um, I, I've been uh, I use a, a particular fenestrated screw in particular cement, and uh, when asked by other companies to try theirs, I, I never do, and it's only because I'm so used to the the haptic feedback of that system of of putting the cement in and what the viscosity should be and how long we wait until we start putting it in and i've noticed that you know i've i've had a resident once push cement through a screw and and not have that the having never done it and pushed a bunch of cement out where i feel like there there is some feedback you get from pushing it in is there do you do you use that feedback too or do you rely on on live fluoro when you're pushing it in or what what's your preferred method of doing it yeah, I, I, uh, I definitely re uh, rely on feedback, on, on tactile feedback, um, but but I do use uh, a fluoro. I, I won't use live fluoro. Uh, I'll inject and then check, and so it's usually it's an iterative process. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, have multiple uh, uh, periods of injection followed by fluoro just to check it. Um, and and so it is a combination of feel, but I also like to look at it and see because sometimes I can get you can get fooled, and all of a sudden cement's going in an area that you, you weren't planning and. Uh, often it's time to stop at that point. Right. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think that is pretty much the the technique that's uh, most uh, uh, supported by the literature and supported by the, the technical uh, booklets for these companies. But one thing that I've done, uh, Matt, to also help for safety, as you know, is that we'll take, say, we'll say we'll place our screws and then we'll take an intra-op uh, uh, CT scan or uh, and or, or some kind of reformatted scan, and if the screws aren't leaning up against the medial cortex or the lateral cortex or, or the bone does not look destroyed, uh, it gives another sense of, of uh, support uh, that we could place the cement uh, safely because we see that the, the screw uh, in inside the middle of bone or what have you, and sometimes even you can actually see the holes of the fenestrated screws actually where they are. And uh, that gives me a sense that when we put cement in, it's going to hopefully go in a, in a position. And so having that not only is a way that a lot of people look at their screws uh, uh, when they're done with a case, but it's a way that I look at my screws and then, and then have confidence that I can put cement in. So that's another technique that gives us all another sense of uh, safety. I completely agree. I think using, if you have that capacity, check intraoperatively with a CT. I think that's a, it's a great, it's a, it's a great safety net. I, I use the same technique and to go back to the point uh, that Matt was making uh, with regard to uh, cement consistency, there really are differences uh, from one company to the next. Not to say that any one is better than the other, but it, it is very important that you understand that there are differences so you don't apply the same, you don't look for the same feedback from one company, use a different company and, and have completely different feedback. So it's important to understand that. Yeah, those are great points. The uh, uh, Dan, great point about the uh, uh, the intraoperative uh, CT that that really gives us a lot of feedback about uh, where the cement's going to be coming out, where it's going to be going. Do you guys think? Uh, I heard I heard uh, Fran Hornacek talk about this one time. Do you guys think that the that with the introduction of these fenestrated screws, that one day we're going to be doing different things other than cement into these bones. For example, into osteoporotic patients, we might be putting some sort of local agent or into patients with metastatic disease, we might put some sort of uh, active treatment. Is this is this something that is a, a possibility, you think, or uh, are we going too far there? I, I personally am not, I mean, I, I can't, I won't say that it, it's not going to happen, but I would say that that's a long way down uh, the road, simply because if somebody has very poor uh, bone quality, they have 
or bone in many different areas. And so if you're injecting something through the, the screw, you know, perhaps that would impact the, the adjacent levels. But one of the major issues, of course, is is the problem with the adjacent level. It's not only the problem with the, the screw fixation, but fracture above the screws. And so that really, I think, would be uh, better treated uh, with a systemic agent. So I, I don't see that that as being a, a, uh, a conduit uh, anytime soon. Plus, the regulatory issues, I think, would be quite different than as well. So I, uh, it's possible, but I, I, I don't see it surpassing uh, systemic treatment. Yeah, just to add to that point, uh, you know, I feel like when vertebroplasty really first started becoming popular, um, this was the this was the boon that this was going to not only be an ability to uh, add cement and do biopsies in an efficient way, but also be a, a corridor through which we could give local therapy. And I think that it's always a possibility; it just hasn't taken off. And I think the reason is not only what Joe said, but also the fact that our local therapies have become very efficient in the terms in terms of uh, conformal radiation. So, albeit it could be nice to deliver some medicine when uh, the patient has a surgery and then follow, is followed up with a very focused, very conformal, meaning the, the plan is a, exactly around where the tumor is with radiation, I think that has uh, been really the, the market leader in, in directed uh, therapy. And then I, and I just want to agree with Joe that whenever you do a local therapy, whether it be an infusion of chemotherapy or other types of drugs, or a brachytherapy, meaning a local radiation, those are, are, at least in our experience or my experience, is very, very challenging because, for example, it's easy for a surgeon to put a screw in and then to let the patient heal and get radiation in a, in a suite where they do radiation. But to actually involve sometimes the surgeon with the radiation oncologist in the operating room and with, a chemo th with an oncologist, the regulation becomes quite uh, uh, challenging. So I think right now, that paradigm of focused radiation and surgery seems to be the leading uh, model at this current time. Yeah, those are great yeah. points. Uh, at the expense of us going, uh, or at the risk of us going too long here, I'll, I guess I'll end uh, uh, with one final question here. You know, I think it's clear from the literature, there was a nice review in, in Global Spine, I think it was last month or the month before, on uh, a review of almost 20 years of using cement in the spine and, and, and specifically in fenestrated screws and kind of all the points you guys talked about, uh, you know, the, the risk of seeing some extrav is really high, but the risk of that causing any problem, at least in uh, uh, folks that know how to do it, is incredibly low. Uh, and so I think, I think we get a lot of advantage from, from utilizing this, certainly in, in metastatic patients or in bad osteoporosis. Um, I guess my question is is for both of you, but Dan, I know you know you're you're you have a certain business savvy about you in regards to value in healthcare. It you know, I've heard it said multiple times that these fenestrated screws are much more expensive to machine. Uh do you think do you think these things are worth it? Oh, definitely. I think and I think what you're gonna see in terms of the value add is as vendors or as companies uh try to limit their inventory because that's a huge cost, um, what they'll do is they'll say, instead of keeping 8 million types of screws on the shelf, which, which you're not using, which are sitting there and they're, they're wasted, basically, shelved cost, there's this huge push to, one, either say, tell me exactly what screws you want, and I'll mail them to you the night before. There's this whole idea about individual packaged sterile implants, which a lot of companies are pushing, or kind of a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. And if, and if you go to the latter, which is different than the former, different models. But if you go to the latter saying, what is our most efficient screw? 
the screw is probably going to be one that's cannulated and one that's got fenestrated holes in it. So cannulated so you can place a K-wire down it and then fenestrated so you can place cement. And that might be a slightly higher expensive screw because of those extra modalities. But in terms of inventory, if it can do that, whether or not you'd place it with a K-wire and whether or not you place cement through it, that may be the cheaper way for a company to make screws rather than having a whole assortment of screws in every single type and size. So I think that you're going to see that coming out, and I've heard that some companies are trying that. So that actually may be a value add and a cost savings, even though it's a slightly more expensive screw in theory because there's, there's, more, there's more adaptations to it. Interesting. Well, guys, anything else you want to add before we, uh, before we wrap up here? This has been great. Thank you so much. And this is, a, I think, an important topic. And I think it's going to become much more used. Some people are concerned about it, but like anything, as, as a lot of specialists use it and share, I think we're all going to move in the right direction. We're all going to learn from each other and get better at this. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thanks very much. I, I learned a lot. I always do. Thank you. Well, guys, thanks as usual. Matthew Goodwin, Washington University, uh, signing off for uh, Dan Shuba uh, from Johns Hopkins and, and Joe Schwab uh, from Harvard. I uh, want to thank you for uh, joining us this evening. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Good night.